0: Presented by CyberScoop, DC Cybertalks is a TED-like conference dedicated to addressing cybersecurity priorities, trends innovations, and the unprecedented security challenges ahead. For one day, 1,000 of the most influential cyber leaders from tech and government will gather in D.C. to hear the industry's brightest speakers discuss the most critical issues in cybersecurity. Join us on Thursday, October 24th at the Andrew Mellon Auditorium in D.C. For more information and to register, check out dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for October fourth. I'm Greg Otto,
1: and I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap up of InfoSec news.
0: Brace yourselves; there is another round of the crypto wars coming over the horizon. We will dive into what exactly is happening this time.
1: In our interview, we talk with Bob Ackerman, co-founder of Data Tribe and founder of Allegis Cyber.
0: A lot of D.C. area companies making noise this week. We will get to all of their funding and acquisition news, but there's just a ton, of course, that went on this week, so let's talk about it.
1: Attorney General Bill Barr, along with officials from the United Kingdom and Australia, is pushing Facebook to delay plans for end-to-end encryption across its messaging service until it can guarantee that added privacy does not reduce public safety. Signed by Barr, UK Home Security, Pratip Patel, Secretary of Homeland Security Kevin McAllenan and Australian Minister for Home Affairs Peter Dutton. The letter raises concerns that Facebook's plan to build end-to-end encryption into its messaging apps will prevent police from finding illegal activity conducted through Facebook, including child sexual exploitation, terrorism, and election meddling. Craig, why are we doing this again?
0: uh because it, it's just i I don't know I, I wish I had an answer uh for you. Uh, I really don't understand why we are doing this now why the government is doing this time this this time around we've been through this it's been the same thing for 10 15 years now um the government asking tech firms to lay off encryption. Tech firms turning around and saying, uh, "No, we have to protect our users," and just that—it's literally that. It's just that ba- back and forth. And and this one seems particularly lazy because Facebook already has a number of ways to to utilize encryption. If you are a user, if you use WhatsApp, you already have it. It's it's there by default. Right. Um, Facebook Messenger—it's it, a little bit different in that if you are using Facebook Messenger, there's a way to toggle encryption on and off. If you open up a conversation and look at the options of the conversation, they have a feature called Secret Conversations that you can switch on and off. All that means is that your um, conversation is now encrypted. Um, There was also an announcement earlier this year from uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg that He was working on unifying the back end on all of their messaging apps, uh, any sort of messaging platform that they have, Instagram, Instagram, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, I know Instagram, there was just an app that was rolled out uh, earlier this week. I forget the name of it, but it was basically a chat app amongst close friends on Instagram. Um, Zuckerberg wants to unify the backend technology that powers all of them. And once you unify that technology, you can put encryption into it too. Uh, That was part of uh, his plan in unifying that backend. And Now the the government has said, you know, how about you hold off on doing that altogether, which.
1: My thought is that most people, the average person that is using Facebook chat thinks that it's encrypted and that nobody else can find out what they're saying.
0: Right. I, I would imagine that as well, which is why I think Zuckerberg was moving to unify the backend in order to just put it in by default and just, just have it. So people weren't thinking about it. Um, because yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I don't think people know that Facebook messenger, you even have the option to do it. Like, uh, I I think most people would look at that secret conversations part and go, "Well, well, what is that even about? Like, I don't understand what I'm getting at here.
1: Right.
0: So, um, Yeah, I I don't think the users really understand that uh, at all. But at the same time, law enforcement has ways to get into phones and get into conversations without ever like really meddling in what the user is doing right now. So... Uh, again, back to your original question, why are we doing this now? I, I, I really don't know. It doesn't seem like the government, like the government's being a little bit willfully ignorant here. If you ask me, they know what they're capable of. They know what the platforms do. So this is just another opportunity to try to ram encryption legislation into the public consciousness. It's just, it, it's exhausting.
1: I mean, I guess we'll see what happens and if it, it moves forward at all.
0: Well, it'll be interesting as we're recording this. I I don't know what the takeaway will be, but um, the the attorney general is having an event with John Walsh, the guy that used to host America's Most Wanted, and they're really framing this argument around. Oh, you need to, you know, we we need to be able to uh, track down people that are exploiting children. Which, of course, everybody is going to say, yeah, we want to be able to. We want law enforcement to do that. I doubt that they're going to get up there and then say, here are all the ways we already have the ability to do it. That's just not going to happen. And there's just, there's a a real lack of transparency here that is, it's not surprising, but again, it's still exhausting.
1: You know, at the end of the day, I sort of think that anything I put in writing, whether it be via text message or on Facebook Messenger or on Facebook or an email, I kind of feel like that is gettable by somebody else and is being read by somebody else. So I guess I don't, I wouldn't consider putting anything major into any of those things anyway.
0: I think it's good to be paranoid, but I I, I think it's safe to say for the wide swath of population that no, they're not having their stuff read, but it's that ability to have it be read. Like right. it's, it's, it's sitting somewhere, whether it's in a, a, a Facebook, uh, data center or a Google data center, or, you know, pick your, pick your tech company and pick the data center. Like it's sitting somewhere the 99% of the population isn't going to ever have those messages read. However, the, it, it can be done. You know, if you get into a, a legal quandary where there needs to be some sort of discovery, well, th- then that flips. And sure, uh, the legal process should should carry out there. But I think that it's important to note that the legal process still can like without having the backdoor encryption. There, there are ways for for law enforcement and intelligence um, uh, agencies to gather information without the, the necessary need to, you know, backdoor uh, crypto. So, hey, everyone, did you know that just for a few hundred dollars, you can hire your own sophisticated propaganda arm to pump out phony articles to either tear an idea down or build it up? You do now, thanks to research released Monday by threat intelligence company Recorded Future, which found disinformation as a service features advertised on criminal forums to be alarmingly simple to use and effective as well. From the research, quote, if the ease of this experience is any indication, we predict that disinformation as a service will soon spread from a nation state tool to one increasingly used by individuals and organizations. They, the company set up a fake company and hired one threat actor to promote it and another to discredit it. Both were incredibly professional, amenable to feedback, and engaged real people in the ploy. Jen, are you ready to put some money behind propaganda as a service companies?
1: Absolutely not. You know, when I, when I think about investing, I think about, um, you know, does this make a positive impact on the world? This does not. This is the absolute opposite of that. But I think it will be successful. I mean, I think you recall um, RSA a couple of years ago when there was a company that sort of created fake news and a, freak, uh, a fake protest um, just to create noise. And I think people like doing this. And see it as a marketing ploy. So I think we will see um, companies using this um, to market what they do. Uh,
0: I'm, I'm 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 shocked that you don't want to pour money into uh, content that deceives people. Well, what's what's <laughs> wrong with you? Um, uh, no, you know it, it, it's funny that you bring up the the positive impact of this and uh, this research well, well i think it's important to put out there i why i think this research is important is because it shows the the real as a service part like this it, these are shady companies but they're still companies like there's some money behind it like this isn't just uh nation states with a propaganda wing and i there have been two uh great uh examples of this uh, over the past uh, 48 hours, uh, two actually great uh, BuzzFeed uh, investigations. One was that, uh, remember in the lead up to the net neutrality uh, argument and the repeal of the FCC rules, there were tons of, of comments that flooded the FCC's system uh, against net neutrality. Well, BuzzFeed did an investigation and found out that all of those comments, uh, which w- w- was... Very much disinformation because they were all just created out of thin air, were the work of two PR firms in the US. So it was all just completely, um, you know, completely made up, but completely created as sort of just like. Uh, Any company process like (laughs) some people make software, other people make um, you know disinformation campaigns. Uh, Another one, there was an announcement uh, earlier this morning or late Thursday night from from Facebook that uh, they took down a a bunch of disinformation that was uh, sitting somewhere between the United Arab Emirates and Nigeria. And what happened was is there were PR companies in the Emirates that were again creating all of this there were teams of people that just created all of this and pushed it out there and it was a very organized professional effort so there's there's real true money behind this like there were companies being stood up to do just this it's not you know uh, I mean we've heard the stories about Russia and the internet research Agency but that has really been like a quasi nation state effort this is just hey, this is what we do. We'll do it for, you know, the highest bidder We're business. We're open for business and we're open to just spew junk on the internet to try to, you know, skew the public to, uh, your vantage point.
1: I mean, look at the end of the day, people will do anything to make money. And, you know, and, and we see evidence of that of, of mainstream things, right. Um, check cashing stores and cigarette shops and vaping stores, right. None of that's for the greater good. um, People will do anything to make money and and as long as someone's willing to pay for it, somebody's going to create the service and somebody's going to perform the service.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that. Disinformation as a service is the predatory lending of the internet.
1: It is, 100%. So iPhone hackers went nuts last Friday when a researcher released an unpatchable iOS exploit that could make any iPhone from Model 4S 211 susceptible to a permanent jailbreak. The exploit, known as Check M 8 takes advantages of flaws in Apple's secure boot realm realm, and allows users to remove restrictions imposed on the devices by Apple or various telecom carriers. Once used on a device, CheckM8 then allows for users to downgrade their services to previous iOS versions, run a device with a second operating system, or run custom-made firmware. Craig, how bad is this for Apple?
0: Um I mean it, it it's bad due to the uh amount of devices that are affected by this but at the same time there's not a lot that can be done like Apple can't push a patch on this. Um it it's just something that lives on the hardware side of things and for Apple to be able to fix this they would need to like do some, they would literally need to reset the silicon in old phones. Like that's not going to happen. Like this is something that's yeah. going to be around until these phones are just uh, relics. I mean, I, I can't, I wouldn't even know where to find uh, outside of eBay uh, an iPhone 4S, but obviously people still use iPhone sixes and sevens and, and it. It's all – if that has an A11 chip in it, then they're susceptible to this. Now, everyday users aren't necessarily going to throw their phones on their computer and download this. Like there's a sophisticated uh, level of knowledge that goes into jailbreaking a phone. Um, Right. So – our moms and dads and, and and aunts and uncles aren't going to be necessarily sitting on their computer trying uh, to do this. You have to be a real phone nerd to to be into jailbreaking. But what what is possible then once this gets on there is is really uh, interesting. Um, and I would not be surprised if you see this process and and this exploit. Uh, being worked into bigger exploits from the the shady zero day firms that we all know, like NSO Group and Hacking Team, like these those teams build upon the flaws that are inherent in the phones. And while this is just good for you know hobbyists and and, and nerds that really want to be able to run different versions of uh, iOS or their own custom iOS uh, platforms, cool. I mean th- that that's fine. But what's really dangerous here is to see how. Uh, the the shady exploit developers are going to build on top of it. And that's where things get really bad for Apple.
1: It's really not. It's unless we're jailbreaking our phone, it's not really going to affect us in any way. And, you know, for the average person, it just doesn't matter that much.
0: No, it 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 really doesn't. It, especially if you've bought a new device, it, if your device has an A twelve or an A thirteen chip, which I, I believe are in the newer models of iPhones and iPads, and um, that that it, they're not susceptible to this. So it is older phones, and the the more that time goes by, and the more that people you know upgrade their phones, this is going to fade by the wayside. But yeah. It, Unless you're really into jailbreaking phones, you're not you're not susceptible to to any of this. Then on the flip side, if you are, because there is a, a large community that is into this stuff, this is like Christmas. <laughs> Times five, like th- this is this is awesome. This is awesome for everybody. It, it, go back to if you're uh, on Reddit, go to our jailbreak or our jailbreaking, one of the two, and just look at the comments that have to do with this checkmate thing. People are freaking out. It's actually well, pretty you know, funny to good read. Good
1: for them. Merry early Christmas. <laughs>
0: A former Yahoo software engineer has pleaded guilty to hacking into about 6,000 Yahoo accounts for the purpose of finding nude images and videos of the account holders. Reyes Daniel Ruiz, 34, admitted in federal court Monday that he targeted the accounts of younger women, including his personal friends and work colleagues, in order to pull images and videos from the various accounts. Ruiz cracked the accounts by accessing various internal Yahoo systems and then using that information to access iCloud, Facebook, Gmail, Dropbox, and other online services to find more private images and videos. Jen, uh, insider threats sometimes are just reprehensible creeps.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the creeps are getting more technology savvy. But a lot to unpack here. Who still uses Yahoo? Um, You'd be I
0: surprised at that the say. amount of people that still have that still have Yahoo emails. I mean, you, you sign up for that uh, email and, and you start, you know, integrating in your. Integrating it into your life, it's tough. um, It's tough to you know go somewhere else, you know, and and people get lazy too. Don't forget that. So um, yeah.
1: And who's putting nude photos and pictures up in iCloud, right? I mean, I feel like that's what you sort of, if you're going to have something like that, you would just put it on your device and not have it back up into anything?
0: Well, you know, it's actually uh, funny that you bring that up, because I've been talking to somebody that's just been having uh, phone trouble overall, and part of the the trouble they've been having with their phone is the stuff that was stored on iCloud. She had no idea what what was and what wasn't stored on iCloud, and she didn't even know like how she turned on like that those backups so it it is very easy i feel when when you are working with iCloud in particular to get confused as to how that stuff works and, and what is and isn't on the iCloud and how you're sharing stuff to the iCloud and what you're actually backing up so i'm sure that there are tons of people out there that have private and nude photos that are on iCloud and they don't even know it
1: PSA to everyone with of nude photos, keep a separate folder within, um, within your um, photos of nude photos that aren't getting backed up to iCloud. Yeah,
0: just, yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't keep them on uh, iCloud uh, and, and don't, no. yeah. I, and Facebook, I feel like overall, like if any, anything uh, of those, so let's say iCloud, Facebook, Gmail, and Dropbox. If you are, if you do feel the need oh. to store some nudes, I feel like Dropbox would be your best option. Um, I would. There's absolutely no way I would do it on Gmail or Facebook. There's just way, too, way too much um, v- vulnerability there. But uh, overall, um,
1: <laughs> if you have photos on Facebook, um, you're literally just asking to give it to the general public world. You're,
0: war. you're walking into a disaster. that's, that's.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're doing that on purpose. You are trying to tell people to look at those photos, um, regardless of where they are in Facebook or messenger.
0: Yeah. So if this is a problem that uh, you have, can, as always consider your threat model.
1: <laughs> that's kind of awesome. So as the healthcare sector has grappled with a string of ransomware infections in recent years. There has been a dearth of public data on those incidents, hindering what the sectors can learn from them. One researcher, Recorder Futures' Alan Liska, is trying to help fill the void. Data he shared exclusively with CyberScoop on Wednesday challenges assumptions about digital extortion in the medical world. Despite the high value of their data, healthcare organizations aren't necessarily more likely to pay the ransom. Out of roughly 120 incidents, Liska studied just 15% of the cases had confirmed payouts while the new data set may spur more conversations, it is far from complete. He acknowledged, quote, there is this incentive to minimize the impact of ransomware attacks if you can credibly say. No patient data were interrupted, and so therefore we don't have to report anything, Liska said. Greg, so is this a bigger problem or just a problem that's now being reported, and and what else did he have to say?
0: Uh, I think it's a a little bit of both. I mean, I think it's a bigger problem because these small healthcare shops i shouldn't even say small healthcare shops cuz it's I, I think it's just healthcare uh, across the board um i don't i still don't think that they are really grasping they're just starting to grasp how ransomware can uh hit them and it can hit them hard so i think that you're starting to see more reports of it but i think that the the reports aren't reflective of what's are only starting to be reflective of what's going on. Um I think it was just this week there were two hospitals or two uh, you know healthcare providers that were just shut down completely. Like that that's that's it. Um I think it was Tuesday on Tuesday it was announced the largest hospital system in West Alabama, which I mean, is not the biggest hospital in the world, but I mean, a, a, I'm sure a lot of people depend on that for their health. They were turning patients away because they were hit by a ransomware attack. And then uh, a clinic in Southern California was shut down permanently because of uh, a ransomware attack. I mean, their entire um, database of patient personal healthcare information just completely gone. So uh, it's just putting people out of business in the healthcare industry. We talk about ransomware uh, all the time, but we, where else have we seen companies just shut down completely outside of the healthcare space? You don't see that. It's Healthcare is definitely a, a case for how things can go really, really bad if you're not protected against ransomware.
1: Really interesting. I'm actually surprised. I kind of had the assumption that, that every hospital system that was ransomware paid out. I would have never guessed it was only
0: 15%. I think that it's it's been uh, uh, a learning experience across the board. And I think that the uh, message is getting through that, okay, we shouldn't pay these people because there's no guarantee we're going to get uh, the, this healthcare information back.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm. that's just really surprising um, numbers to me. Um, And, you know, and and quite frankly, you know, as I think about it, I'm not sure I've heard about um, just on general news um, ransomware attacks um, against hospital systems lately.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with I mean, you think about uh, a hospital system in West Alabama or a clinic in Southern California, that's not necessarily always going to get, you know, top flight coverage in the New York times, or, you know, we're, we're a small operation. We would love to write about these stories, but I mean, we don't have like a national uh, desk to, to, cover this stuff. So it basically falls to like local news outlets and let's be honest, local news outlets uh, aren't uh, up to date on really what goes on with ransomware. They don't know the nuances of it and and what is going on. So e- they hear these stories and local newsrooms go, oh, I have no idea what that is. So I'm just going to pass on it. Um, so it, it really speaks to the, the reporting that goes into it. As well. It's tough. It's tough to, to, you know, uh, wrap your heads around it. If, um, you have no idea what you're going into.
1: That makes sense.
0: So Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of VMware had some interesting comments earlier at a, at an event, uh, from CyberScoop. uh, He said the security industry had failed its customers and that security must become more intrinsic if enterprises are ever going to keep up with the threats they face on a daily basis. He told me every year we are asking enterprises for more money from their security budgets and every year there's an increasing number and cost of breaches. And he considers this to be a failure. He compared the state of the industry to lawyers who make a living chasing after car accident victims in the hopes of scoring a personal industry settlement. Jen, do you agree with him?
1: Um, I love the way he phrased it. Um, you know, I, yes and no, right? I mean, so yes, on the surface, that's exactly what it looks like, right? We're spending more money on security. We're having more breaches. Um, hackers are getting better. Um, but but also, look, there's more threats. Hackers are getting better. Um, they're spending more time um, thinking about it. there's more money to be gotten. Um, so so yes and no. Um you know, look, we can never spend um, enough money on security, um, but budgets are unlimited.
0: Yeah, I, I get the the failure part is a little bit uh, trumped up. But at the same time, I, I think the, the idea that security must become more intrinsic is an interesting one. And you can see it in the way that the company has been you know, just positioning itself. They they bought Carbon Black last month and right. they want to just integrate Carbon Black into all of their products. Uh, well, I mean, where else do you see that? I mean, you might see that with, you might see that with Microsoft products, but Microsoft has just everything under their umbrella. Amazon on the cloud side, they have a host of Things that they do, but if you you know you drill down uh, past that and and you start to get into the actual containerization and and all of the development stuff that goes into this technology that we use, you don't hear a lot about the security being built in from the beginning. And I think that that is a very interesting angle, and I think that things need to move that way if we are ever going to be truly secure. Like going back to what you were saying about people using Facebook Messenger, not knowing if uh, uh, encryption is, uh, or not knowing if their messages are encrypted. They shouldn't have to worry about that. And it, it should be the same way uh, when you're setting up, um, you know, an in, in enterprise infrastructure. Uh, the people setting that up shouldn't have to worry about the security being in it. It should just be in it and they shouldn't have to worry about it. So the same logic applies there.
1: Yeah, I just, I mean, I mean absolutely. I just don't, I don't really see, um, anywhere in the new future that happening um, cybersecurity tools are expensive and no matter how big the budget is, they still have third-party vendors they're using um, and you're as strong as your weakest link. Um, But also I do think the market's going that way, right? I mean, we're seeing a lot of acquisitions in the space. um, And I think we're starting to see sort of a cybersecurity roll up and we're going to see big companies having a, a, a soup to nuts, um, offering out there to completely protect the organization. So at some point, yes. Um, but for now, probably for the next five years, I don't see um, us really getting that much stronger on a cybersecurity front.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. This is going to be something that's going to take probably a decade before it's actually just commonplace in the technology industry.
1: So for years, Ubekistan Security Service, NSS, has been accused of aggressively spying on citizens and abusing human rights in the name of its counterterrorism and security operations. Now, new Kaspersky research brings the evolution of NSS pursuits of surveillance tools is coming onto focus. After burning the multiple zero-day exploits acquired from vendors, an nss link group dubbed SandCat has been rapidly testing its own malware, according to Kaspersky's Brian Berthelmeu. The findings show how a proliferation of surveillance vendors have made it easier for governments of all sizes to get into the hacking game. Quote, if they would have had better OPSEC in how they handle these exploits, we probably could have never been caught them. So Greg, how bad of an OPSEC fail is this? This is
0: a pretty, uh, this is, you know, uh, a nice, solid, I would put it on a scale of 110. This is probably about a seven uh, in terms of uh, an OPSEC fail. We we know that Kaspersky's products work and work well, and they communicate back to Kaspersky headquarters, where then Kaspersky researchers poke around on what is going on. This is long been rumored to what happened with um, uh, an NSA worker when he took classified information back uh, home and was working on it. He had Kaspersky on his home device, uh, and Kaspersky was scanning and sent all that stuff, uh, back to Kaspersky. That's, I mean, that was the story. And that's why, uh, the government figured out what was going on there. Same thing here. This, um, Security service was developing malware. They had Kaspersky on their systems and Kaspersky picked it up on what was going on. (laughs) Like the the, the rule, basic OPSEC rule, if you are a uh, malware engineer, do not write your malware on a computer that has Kaspersky installed any sort of product, antivirus, endpoint security, or whatever. Like if you have Kaspersky on the machine, don't use it to write malware because you're giving Kaspersky uh, the inside track to figure out what's going on and write up a report before you're even able to deploy it. So there you go.
1: <laughs> nice. Um, you know, sometimes we don't think about everything.
0: Yeah. Hey, look, it's still humans at the end of the day writing this stuff. So there's going to be some errors uh, along the way, but there's still some basic steps you can take. Like I said, don't, don't write your malware on a Kaspersky, uh, on a machine with Kaspersky on it.
1: All right. I'll remember that next time.
0: The FBI is looking into a hacking attempt. A ag- against the mobile app that West Virginia officials used to collect ballots from some overseas voters during the 2018 election cycle. Mike Stewart, the U.S. attorney for West Virginia, said his office was notified about an attempted intrusion into the Votes mobile voting app during the midterm election season. While the hack appeared to be unsuccessful, West Virginia officials said they referred the matter to the FBI to deter outsiders from trying anything similar in the future. Since its use in West Virginia, Votes has gone on to test its app in other jurisdictions, including Denver, which used the app in its mayoral election last May, and Utah County, Utah, which offered it in a set of local races. Jen, Votes, the mobile voting app powered by the blockchain, are you surprised in any way that it was a target of hacking?
1: Not even a little bit. Of course it's someone who's going to try to hack it. I mean, I kind of feel like, why wouldn't you try to hack it if that's what you like to do? it would have been a target on my list for sure.
0: Yeah. I'm really interested to see if we ever find out who was behind this because it just seemed like it was, this was ripe uh, to happen. And a great example of why we just shouldn't be doing this overall. Like just the, the idea that it was a target. It should be enough to go, okay, we don't need to paint a target on anything that we're doing when we're talking about counting votes. So let's figure out a, a different, probably a low-tech way to get votes from people overseas. like let's let's just pass on this overall. I don't this is a perfect example of why we shouldn't do this, why we should not be painting targets on the democratic process.
1: Well, I mean, it, we're coming up on another election cycle. It'll be interesting to see if we have any um, other targets painted on um, different localities and, and counties and, and states.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, there there are definitely going to be uh, attempts, and I don't think this app. I, I it, it would be like the, the one of the top five stories of the decade if this app somehow became so popular that it was. A a mainstream part of like the 2020 election cycle. So I don't think that we'll have to worry too much about this right now. But uh, yeah, um, moving down uh, the line, there are much more uh, different things uh, to be worried about in, in terms of election security. So now to uh, the business side of things, some interesting raises this week. Uh, Kenna Security, a San Francisco-based uh, enterprise security company focused on risk-based vulnerability management, raised $48 million in a Series D funding round. Investors included Sorenson Capital and City Ventures. A ReFirm Labs, a Maryland-based provider of IoT Firmware Security Solutions, raised $2 million in funding. Uh, Data Tribe and New Dominion Angels led the round and was joined by investors, including Tedco and Tyson Angels Investors. Congratulations to Terry Dunlap. He was an early guest of our program, so good to see he's getting some funding. Hyper, uh, New York City-based provider of passwordless security, closed an $18.3 million Series B financing round. The round, which brings their total funding to more than $32 million, was led by Comcast Ventures with a bunch of other participation, 406, RRE, TripHammer, BoldStart, Start, Allen Co., RTP, MasterCard, and Samsung. Everybody wants a piece of that. Interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and congratulations to uh, another former guest. Marcus Carey's uh, Threat Care, which provides cybersecurity attack simulations and has developed an AI based security system for security teams, was acquired by a Tampa, Florida based security company known as uh, Reliquest. Uh, I didn't see any terms on that, but congratulations to Marcus. And uh, the big uh, business uh, nugget that dropped this week, uh, FireEye, is exploring, looks to be exploring a sale. Uh, Looks like they've contacted uh, Goldman Sachs to sort of uh, dot the T's, cross the I's, and kick the tires on what it would take to sell the company. So very, very interesting developments there. But uh, Jen, what do you think?
1: Well, of course, start care is on our portfolio company. So that to me is the most exciting um, thing to happen out of that bunch. But, but what great news for for Refirm Labs. Um, I just really like that team. Um, and it's just an interesting group of people came together um, to fund the company. Obviously, we'll talk to um, Bob in a few minutes um, about um, data tribe participation um, in the round. Um, New Dominion Angels is a local angel group group. Um, In the in the D.C. area um, with with all kinds of interesting people in that group. Um, Tedco, of course, is um, Maryland State Money um, and Taysons Angel Investors um, is is another um, small group of angel investors around the D.C. area.
0: Yeah, um, Refirm does some really, really interesting stuff, and we've talked about firmware stories before. I think firmware security is a really, really interesting uh, market. If I, you know, was an angel investor, that's what I would be pouring money into because I feel that that, that the software application, like protecting the actual code uh, that goes into applications and software, I, that's just such a crowded market. Uh, the, the firmware stuff is can be much more damaging from a cybersecurity perspective, and there's just not a lot out there right now. I, I, no. I think the market is is uh, really really new, and uh, it's a great time to be uh, dumping money into that because it really really is something worth protecting uh, in enterprises. So I'm sure Bob feels the same way, given that Data Tribe was on uh, the funding round. And we're going to talk to Bob uh, about that uh, right now. We're going to dive in with Bob and talk about what exactly Data Tribe does, because it's a little bit different than your usual um, VC and usual incubator, and talk about uh, just the business in general and what's been going on with Bob. Bob has deep ties to what's going on in the cybersecurity startup landscape, and we will dive into all of it. Check it out.
1: Joining us today is Bob Ackerman, founder and managing director of Allegis Cyber and co-founder of Data Tribe. Bob, thanks for joining us.
2: It's great to be here, Jen. Thank you for including me.
1: So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in cybersecurity.
2: <laughs> oh, a long and tortured journey. Uh, you, know, my, you know, my educational background is computer science. I'm, I'm probably the, the classic Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur story. Having uh, built a couple of companies in uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, but because you know of, of my background, sort of on the more technical side of uh, of software, always have had an interest in security, and that interest in security sort of transitioned from my operating days to my uh, to my days as a venture capitalist. And in the the very early days of my career as a venture capitalist, we started making. Investments related to cybersecurity and related to privacy. Uh, and frankly, you know, just based on some early successes, uh, you know, you, you begin to work with entrepreneurs that are successful. And when you're successful with them, you want to do more together. A lot of those early successes for me as a venture capitalist were in cybersecurity. And as I followed those entrepreneurs, they subsequently started more cybersecurity companies. And so Uh, You know, cyber became a larger and larger percentage of uh, the investment portfolio that I was developing, spending more and more of my time on cybersecurity. And, you know, over the last 20 years, I've had an opportunity to work with some phenomenally talented entrepreneurs that have built some great companies, um, built my own domain knowledge and expertise uh, back at a time when, frankly, most of the venture community thought cyber was uh, the land of the paranoid and a little niche. And uh, it, it turns out we, were, we all were paranoid, but for good reasons, but not a niche. And so, uh, you know, 20 years of investing in cybersecurity, um, you know, built a domain uh, expertise and have built a strong network. And that really feeds on itself. I think one of the things, you know, I, when I talk to people about cybersecurity, cyber is something that I don't think you do part time, uh, either as an entrepreneur or as a venture capitalist. It's, it's very complex, it moves very quickly uh, you really need to be deeply enmeshed uh, in the domain to understand where technology is, where technology is going, where the threat vectors are likely evolving, where the gaps and holes are if you're going to be building companies. And uh, you know as I said i've been I've been fortunate to work with some phenomenally talented folks, uh, and that's just led my career to one today, which is one hundred percent focus on cybersecurity.
1: When did you jump into one hundred percent focus on cybersecurity with your fund? Was it well? We
2: started on the Allegiant side. We started making uh, cyber investments twenty years ago, uh, okay. and uh, cyber became a larger and larger percentage of our portfolio. Uh, going back about six years ago, uh, we made the decision to shift our investment focus one hundred percent to cybersecurity. And about five years ago, we raised the world's first dedicated cyber fund. And it's uh, it's it's kind of amazing how. The landscape has evolved. I remember when we did the first dedicated uh, cyber fund, uh, a lot of institutional investors that we talked to, uh, the reaction was, well, you know, cyber, that's a that's a little narrow. That's a little nichey, isn't it? And uh, our contention, of course, was that the temptation to look at cyber from a a vertical perspective was wrong. In fact, cyber is horizontal. And uh, what we looked at is we looked at sort of the digitization of a global economy. Uh, and that would basically uh, open up cybersecurity to to span the entire continuum of information technology mapping against that digital economy. And I think, in fact, that's what, what has developed and has transpired. And you see that reflected today, both in the, the, the enterprise spend on cybersecurity, but also mirrored in the level of cybersecurity investment activity within the venture community. So
1: let's jump on that level of investment, right? So it's it seems to be growing. I think what last year there were like 418 new investors that made a first-time cybersecurity investment. Where do you see it going? Do you still think a ton of money is going to be piled into cybersecurity companies? Do you think there's going to be some sort of roll-up? Do you think there's going to be just a lot of more M and A activity and less venture spend?
2: Uh, I, I, I think there are aspects of everything that you just said which are which are accurate. I think if you if you look at the venture capital investment in cybersecurity uh it, it it is purely a reflection of the size of the market uh the fact that the market is driven by innovation uh and venture capitalists doing what venture capitalists do they're, they're trying to identify the innovators and provide capital to participate in the growth of the market so i think the venture activity is a reflection of sort of the macro growth of, of cyber security i think sort of reinforcing uh, that trend is there's confirmation in, in the exits. Uh, you know, certainly cybersecurity is more of an M and A driven market than it is an IPO uh, driven market. Though we have this year seen uh, a number of uh, you know rather successful IPOs. CrowdStrike comes to mind uh, immediately, but certainly not the only one. But when you look at M and A activity, uh, when uh, cybersecurity companies exit, they tend to exit at about a thirty percent premium. To enterprise software companies you know why is that you know it's it's when you get to the public side of of the cyber market you see large IT companies wanting to participate in that cybersecurity industry sector growth uh, basically having to buy their way into the market through M&A transactions and continue to refresh their product pipeline uh, through mergers and acquisitions so you've got this really interesting robust path to liquidity in cybersecurity companies and these companies exit at a premium. And that reinforces you know the proclivity on the part of the venture community uh, to put more company into cyber. Now, you know, one of the one of the questions I get asked today is, well is, you know, is cyber a bubble? And I, I know there was a there was a, an article that came out I think yesterday in TechCrunch talking about, yes, cyber's in a bubble but it's not going to burst anytime soon. And I think I think that goes back to the point that fundamentally cyber is about dealing with very real problems that affect a very broad spectrum of the marketplace. This is not a, a market that's that's driven by hype. Uh, it's a market that's driven by pragmatic needs uh, where real dollars are being deployed to acquire defensive technologies uh, to mitigate the risk and exposure related to cyber attacks. Uh, I think you can parse the cyber market, uh, you know, and get a little more granularity in terms of what's going on. Uh, When I get asked that question, people, you know, will say, is is cyber overfunded? And I said, well, yes and no. How can it be yes and no? It's like, well, there are sectors of the market that are overcapitalized. If you look at things like threat intelligence, you know, there's north of a hundred threat intelligence companies out there. Uh, Are we looking for number 101 or 110 or 120? The answer is no. So there are sectors where the venture herd has done what it normally does, which is find an idea they like and overcapitalize it. And we see that in cybersecurity today. At the same time, I would tell you that I think there are sectors or areas uh, where cyber innovation will turn out to be very important that are undercapitalized. And these are the areas that I would describe as being sort of the, the, the next wave of innovation and when I when I think about the next wave of innovation, I think about things that are are proactive from a security perspective as opposed to reactive from a security perspective. So give an analog. Uh, if, if you can imagine a dike uh, with a thousand holes in it from a cybersecurity perspective today, we're running around and plugging as many of those holes as we can as fast as we can. It's important that we do that. But the second wave of cybersecurity is going to be about how do we stop water from coming through that dike? And these are areas that I think about, uh, You know, for example, data-centric security. Uh, how do we build platforms or technologies where the data is inherently more secure or secure by design? Uh, we look at things like data provenance, uh, which really will build on the, the, the back of the weaponization of data. You know, These are areas where I think there is a tremendous amount of uh, opportunity for innovation and where we're really at the the very earliest stages of capitalizing the innovators that will build those solutions. So I think if you look at sort of the off the shelf uh, sort of standardized, acknowledged capabilities to to plug those gaps, very well capitalized. If we look at sort of the disruptive over the horizon next generation, technologies that are going to make us more secure by design under capital. So,
0: you know, thinking about some of the other sectors, uh, we saw that uh, Refirm Labs, uh, the firmware security startup, uh, just got uh, some funding in part uh, from Allegis. So I'm wondering if we could dive a little bit deeper in your thoughts on the firmware side of things. Because like you said, with threat intelligence, Hundred companies out there that do it. Uh, software security, application security—that's a pretty crowded market. What do you think about these startups that are starting to focus on the uh, you know different layers of the stack, particularly around firmware and hardware?
2: Well, I think it's it's. I think a, a you raise a really good point. I think it really is about it really reflects a maturation in in our thinking uh, about cyber threat vectors. And you know that, that initial wave is kind of the you know is kind of the obvious low hanging fruit. I mean, if you think about it, a, a lot of the most immediate cyber threats that we've dealt with are basically legacies of a 50 year old IT infrastructure. You know, if, if you if you get in the Wayback machine and you jump back 30, 40, 50 years ago, uh, you know the definition of security was did you lock the computer room door? Uh, you did not have the level of connectivity. You did not have the access to data. You did not have the velocity that we have today. So you take that architecture and you spin it forward a couple of generations. All of a sudden, all the world's information is available. You have ubiquitous access and things happen at the speed of light. In the process of that evolution, you identify gaps that are glaring and obvious and need to be mitigated. And that's where we focus that that first wave of cyber innovation. I think we're now getting to that, that second wave. I talked about some of the things that I think are important in that second wave. But we're also understanding sort of the the next, you know, order of threat. And, you know, IoT uh, embedded systems is a a classic example uh, where you've got a couple of different factors going on. Number one, the fact that the the inherent nature of of IoT and embedded system devices is historically there's been a very low level of, of visibility into the elemental components of those systems. Uh, And with that comes uncertainty over the security and the integrity of those underlying architectures. At the same time, you have explosive growth in the in the deployment of these architectures. So you've got you've got two things going on simultaneously. You know that the magnitude of the problem is getting larger. And with the magnitude of the problem getting larger, the the understanding of the vulnerabilities becomes more apparent because the consequences uh, become much more apparent. And so I I think we are seeing, you know, ReFirm's a classic example of where, you know, a team has got very specific skills, uh, you know, being focused on that particular, you know, threat vector. And it's a very, very large threat vector. I mean, you're talking about growth in IOT devices, which inevitably include embedded systems, which is measured in the tens of billions on its way to hundreds of billions of devices you know, over the next five to 10 years, and they are inherently insecure. Uh, and so with that growth, you know, the consequences of getting it wrong from a security perspective go up and innovators begin to focus. I think there's a, there's another really interesting aspect, you know, since we, we you know, we pick on Refirm Labs in this case, you know, Refirm Labs is, is one of the companies that comes out of DataTribe. And one of the things we, we did when we started Data Tribe and it really grew out of some of the, the original Allegis playbook, is we developed a, a, a pretty strong bias uh, with respect to cyber innovation on engineers that basically have spent their entire career in cybersecurity. Our contention is cyber is too complex. It moves too quickly. You can't pick it up on the fly. Uh, you basically have, need to have spent your career in those areas to understand the threat landscape, the the nuances, the nature of the technology, uh, to be able to innovate successfully in in an environment that's rapidly evolving. And so for us, we look for engineers, either that that had spent their entire career in cybersecurity from a commercial perspective, or increasingly looking at engineers coming out of the national intelligence infrastructure, uh, and particularly uh, former offensive engineers. Um, In particular, I have a very strong bias towards ex-offensive engineers Uh, you know when you when you look at offensive engineers coming out of national intelligence they just have an understanding of the architecture of cyberspace the fabric uh, that is comprised of where the seams the the folds the vulnerabilities are they understand how to exploit uh, those vulnerabilities and that puts them in an absolutely ideal position to you know you know step from the seat of the attacker to the seat of the defender understanding where attacks will come from, how they will approach a target. Uh, And that background makes them particularly well-suited to building really effective defensive capabilities. ReFirm is a great example of a a former offensive team that developed that expertise that was then applied to the defensive side of the equation. Uh, Dragos in the industrial control security space, another data-tribe company that's also in the Allegiance portfolio, Another great example, uh, a former offensive team focused on industrial control systems that, uh, you know, honed their defensive capabilities when the Russians attacked the Ukrainian uh, electrical grid. And then with the formation of Dragos, took that expertise and more broadly applied that expertise to, you know, to securing critical infrastructure on a global basis. So, you know, I, I think, you know, as we become more sophisticated about cybersecurity, there's a there's a growing awareness. Certainly, it's part of our playbook. Looking for folks that come out of the offensive community that really are the domain masters uh, in each of these areas where threats are evolving or developing, and capturing that expertise and applying that expertise to building state-of-the-art defensive capabilities that will stand the rigor of the most determined offensive attacker.
1: Could you dive a little bit deeper into what Data Tribe is, and then tell us a little bit about the the challenge?
2: Sure. So, so Data Tribe, uh, my partner Mike Janke, and I uh, sat up Data Tribe uh, about three and a half years ago uh, in Columbia, Maryland. And and Data Tribe, we described Data, Data Tribe as a cybersecurity foundry. And what we noticed uh, when Mike and I were, were looking at sort of cutting edge innovation in cybersecurity is that in, in this case of of the Data Tribe. We saw a phenomenal concentration of cyber engineering in the state of Maryland. Uh, it really is a byproduct of massive U.S. government investment in developing cyber capabilities you know, over decades, tens of billions of dollars a year over decades. And that led to a concentration of what I would call state-of-the-art technical capabilities, uh, you know, principally around the National Security Agency and other associated uh, national laboratories. And we were interested in finding a way to systematically, you know, capture that expertise and leverage it to building defensive capabilities. We had uh, a number number of companies in the Allegis portfolio, uh, you know, Area One Security, SYNAC are two good examples of former NSA engineers that migrated to Silicon Valley uh, to build great companies. But it got to a point where it was increasingly difficult to relocate engineers from Maryland to Silicon Valley, uh, principally due to reasons of cost. And so Mike and I saw this concentration of engineering capability in Maryland, but we saw no ecosystem really that was was geared towards taking the expertise and building companies. And so Data Tribe was really our effort to put the Silicon Valley playbook in a box and situate it in... Uh, in Columbia, Maryland, you know, next to the to Fort Meade, where we could um, identify these domain master engineers with expertise in areas of cybersecurity, we thought were going to be important, and we basically could partner with them to build companies. So, you know, at Data Tribe, uh, we we basically co-build uh, about three companies a year. We team up with. Domain masters coming out of uh, national intelligence; those are either uh, typically ex-offensive engineers or deep data science engineers, the areas where the NSA's capabilities, from a technical perspective, excel. And then we partner with them to build companies. And Data Tribe, uh, you know, is, is a physical uh, plant. Uh, we provide capital, but we provide a, a lot of operating infrastructure and expertise required to take this, these technical capabilities, uh, identify uh, you know use cases in the marketplace, develop product roadmaps, develop go-to-market plans, build teams around the technical expertise, uh, and get those teams to a point where they're ready to be funded by the venture community. So uh, we provide seed capital. We have a dedicated operating team of operating veterans that have all got 20 to 30 years of experience in building companies that basically partner with these, you know, domain master engineers to provide the missing DNA uh, to their technical capabilities to build a commercial company. And that's it, we build about three of those companies a year. So uh, Dragos in the industrial control system space is a good example of that. Uh, ReFirm Labs, Enveil uh, in the homomorphic encryption domain, uh, Attila security and secure communications. Uh, you know, these are all teams that have their roots, you know, inside of National Intelligence, basically leveraging expertise that has been developed at that highest level of practice. And our experience has been that when you when you you know a lot of people will joke when you talk about innovation in government, it's an oxymoron. Uh, you know, being a Silicon Valley guy, many times I would largely agree with that statement. But I'll tell you, when you when you get to cybersecurity and you get to data science are areas where the U.S. government in many ways is operating five to seven years ahead of industry because they're operating at that national intelligence level informed by offensive capabilities, which have been essential to national security. And so Tribe was our effort basically to, to capture the talent that was leaving the National Security Agency and basically harness it to apply that expertise to building state-of-the-art commercial capabilities. And that effort has been very, very successful for us.
0: So what is it about Maryland? You talked a little bit about Maryland there. Is it just proximity to Fort Meade? Because look, the NSA has a lot of outposts that do uh, a lot of things around offensive security. There's you know, an outpost in Texas. There's an outpost in Hawaii. And they all do stuff with signals intelligence and particularly around, sure. um, you know, everything they talk about when it comes to offensive cybersecurity. So um, do you also no. look to those outposts or do, why do you concentrate so much on just the ecosystem around Fort Meade?
2: Well, I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a number of reasons. I mean, we certainly see uh, opportunities to build companies coming out of those other research facilities that, that you've identified. I think, you know, first and foremost, what we do at Data Tribe, uh is, is local. Uh, you know you uh, you know building building a company from scratch requires you know a team you know located physically, you know in in the same place, you know working together day and night. Uh, it's not a virtual activity. You, you must be present to win. And so when you're you're doing what we do at data tribe, you need to pick a place and you try and pick a place that ticks as many of the boxes as possible. so, In Maryland, certainly, you know, the state of Maryland has the largest concentration of cyber engineers in the world. Uh, The number that we were able to pull together is 109,180 cyber engineers going back two years ago in the state of Maryland. Um, And that is that is a byproduct of that massive government investment in capabilities. And again, a lot of those capabilities that we're particularly interested in are offensive. uh, And a lot of that offensive activity uh, perhaps is located in Maryland. Uh, There's signal intelligence in a number of places, but if you look at sort of some of the core capabilities that we're interested in as basically seed corn for building companies, a lot of that is located in Maryland. But when you get beyond that simple NSA-related statistic, you find that the University of Maryland graduates more cyber engineers than any other state university system in the country. You find that the state of Maryland has 16 cyber centers of excellence. So you're finding a very deep, very broad concentration of sort of the most essential ingredient in cyber engineering uh, in in the state of Maryland. Um, On top of that, you've got proximity to critical commercial markets. You know, you're a train ride uh, away from New York, which is probably the leading center of cyber technology consumption uh, in the world. Uh, You've got good proximity to the federal market. If the federal market is of interest to you, um, you know you've got in Maryland uh, a lot of the attributes that are attractive to entrepreneurs: affordable cost of living, good you know good standard of living, good public education systems. So when you you basically, if you were to develop a Venn diagram of things that are important for an innovation cluster, uh, a cyber innovation cluster, uh, you know proximity to market. You end up with a, a Venn diagram that's got a very interesting concentration uh, in the state of Maryland.
1: So, a couple of weeks ago, Greg and I had um, Pavilion on, and um, they had won the cyber challenge last year at Data Tribe. Could you tell us more about the shares?
2: So, well, uh, so we're doing our we're, we're doing our second uh, cyber challenge coming up uh, in uh, November, and you know, much of what we do at Data Tribe, uh, we're we're pretty plugged into a very specific, you know sort of strand of DNA uh, coming from, uh, you know, these national intelligence labs. Uh, And we've been very successful with that. But we also understand that, you know, that is not the only source of of innovation and inspiration for starting companies. And so the Data Tribe Challenge really is, is an opportunity for us to kind of open up our process, open up our methodology to a broader community of, of innovators that kind of fit into our focus on on cybersecurity uh, and data science and so uh, The data tribe challenge is our process of kind of, you know, throwing open the process inviting folks really from around the world To uh, submit their ideas for building uh, Early-stage companies sort of at that seed level um, We will end up with a couple hundred submissions uh, I think uh, last year uh, when we did this, we saw submissions from ten countries. Uh, we saw about twenty percent of our submissions, interestingly enough, coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, I expect that uh, you know the, the profile will mirror that this year. And so we'll take those those two hundred uh, plus submissions. We will down select them to what we think are the three uh, most compelling companies as we evaluate things. Um, those three companies will present at the Data Tribe Challenge and will be evaluated by uh, by a group of judges. They're all, you know, industry executives and, and domain thought leaders. And the objective is to identify out of that process uh, what may very well be the next Data Tribe company. So it's an exciting process that allows us to, you know, to reach outside of the t- typical gene pool uh, that we operate within. And I think Prevalian is, is a is a great example. Prevalian has a lot of those DNA elements that we look for, but not, might not have been on our radar. Uh, you know, Kareem Hajazi was based in Texas, uh, and so a chance for us to bring Kareem in, run him through the process, and lo and behold, at the end of the day, uh, you know, Prevalian ends up being the uh, uh, the winner out of the uh, out of the Data Tribe Challenge last year, and became a Data Tribe company and then actually in May became an Allegis cyber company. And uh, we're looking to repeat that pattern this year.
0: Bob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for telling us a little more uh, about the challenge and look forward to seeing some of the companies that come out of it.
2: Always a pleasure, thanks for the time guys.
1: Thanks again to Bob Ackerman, managing director and founder of Allegis Cybersecurity um, and co-founder of Data Tribe for telling us more about the cyber challenge.
0: Really, really interesting conversation, and Bob's really, really smart when it comes to this stuff. So if you want to see where the future of cybersecurity is going, pay attention to what Bob's doing. And that is it for this week. Thank you again for joining us.
1: As always, stay curious.